Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S. is formulating what to do after the chemical attack in Syria. The president promises a forceful response. Russia says an attack would have grave repercussions. We'll discuss the latest. Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook testifies before Congress, and it's making people think, what should Congress do about Facebook? We'll take some calls and hear about what people's thoughts are on Facebook. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. The president has canceled his trip to South America to oversee the U.S. response on the chemical attack in Syria. We're going to talk about it now with Joshua Landis. He's director of the University of Oklahoma's Center for Middle East Studies. His blog is Syria Comment. Good to talk with you, Joshua. It's a pleasure. Also on the line with us is Dr. Zaire Salul. He's a Chicago-based physician and critical care specialist at Advocate Christ Medical Center. He uh, helped with the Syrian American Medical Society, where he's a past president for many years, and he has an editorial in today's Chicago Tribune, Syria is Normalizing the Use of Chemical Weapons. Uh, nice to talk with you again, Zaire Salul. Thank you for having me. You know, I wonder if you could... Um, Put some context on this here. I know you're in contact with a lot of uh, physicians and healthcare workers in Syria who are are witnessing the effects of chemical weapons all all the time. And uh, this chemical weapons attack was obviously a bad one and got a lot of attention. But there's been a lot in between the one that happened a year ago that uh, President Trump responded to and sent some missiles. Uh, over to Syria, uh, but how many, how many attacks are going on? What what is really the situation there? I think that's uh, that's a really good question. And uh, for the um, I mean, average American who's watching the news uh, from Syria, uh, they may think that this is maybe the second or third uh, chemical weapon attack that happened in Syria. Um, reality and facts uh, indicate that there is at least. Uh, more than 200 chemical weapon attacks that happen in Syria, according to multiple sources, including my uh, organization, the Syrian American Medical Society. We published a report in 2016 that we counted 161 attacks, and uh, the Syrian uh, Human Rights Network uh, um, that reported 211, uh, 211 attacks. Most of the attacks happened after the um, what looked like the destruction of the uh, stockpile of the chemical weapons by the Assad regime, according to the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2118. Um, most of it happened with chlorine, uh, which is a choking agent, uh, one of the uh, earlier uh, chemical agents that were used in the First World War, uh, and some were um, by sarin gas, a nerve gas that has been used in Ghouta, in 2013, that's the famous attack that led to the uh, death of, hundred, uh, of 1,400 people. And also in Khan Sheikhoun uh, a year ago, exactly a year ago, that led to the death of about 100 people, uh, 22 or 33 of them were children. Um, and what we were seeing in the last year that we had several small-scale uh, chemical uh, weapon attacks uh, where people uh, show symptoms of um, choking, of um, 
shortness of breath, uh, of uh, smelling bleach-like odor, uh, which is indicative of exposure to chlorine gas. It happens several times in Idlib and Ghouta. Um, and uh, in Duma, a couple of days ago, it looks like it was a large-scale attack because we had a large number of dead people and not large number of people who were treated in the emergency room. And all of them had the same symptoms. Uh, to me, as a critical care specialist, as a pulmonologist, when I see a large number of people who have no uh, signs of uh, outside injury uh, who are dead, uh, that's a, you know, a clear um, sign of exposure to chemical agents, especially if the ones who are alive um, have the same symptoms, you know, shortness of breath, right. choking, um, uh, irritation in the eyes. Um, some of them um, had stopped breathing, uh, and this is an, a sign of exposure to a chemical agent. Uh, Joshua Landis, I wanted to ask you about what the correct response here is, because obviously, um, you know, lobbing more Tomahawk missiles is not going to change uh, the behavior of the people who are uh, throwing the chemical weapons here, uh, Mr. President Assad, we assume. Uh, what is uh, is there an effective response that the U.S. can formulate to this kind of thing? Um, it, you know, it it seems like the the rules of war are being broken all the time in Syria, and it's not just chemicals. They bomb hospitals. There's um, journalists who are hunted. We're reading about Marie Colvin in the news today being hunted by the Assad regime. Uh, what what kind of uh, you know response do you have that's going to change behavior? Well, the the international norm of not using chemical weapons is an is an important one. It's one that America was willing to defend with Obama in 2013. Then, when Assad began to break it with chemical agents, uh, with uh, <clears throat> with uh, nerve gas, and Khan Sheikhoun, Trump again pursued the same Obama uh, interdiction against this international norm of using chemical weapons, and this. Unfortunately, the U.S. didn't respond when chlorine gas was used because it wasn't originally on the prescribed um, weapons. It did get added to it later, but America didn't want to get involved when in certain uses nobody was killed. In other uses, there would be a handful of people. So America didn't want to get into the minor details. Now, this one is big, and uh, and clearly President Trump is has to send a message and has decided that he's going to send a message and he has to hurt the regime in a way that will deter it. And um, the U.S. administration has not done this with the use of chlorine gas in any consistent way. And that's where that's where it has to set down a new marker to stop the use of chlorine. And uh, and that can be done by hurting the Assad regime in a way that is meaningful to them. I was reading a former uh, a quote from former Ambassador Ford in Syria in the New Yorker, and he said, "Well, you know, I don't think a you know a real one-off response is going to do anything. You would have to do it again and again and again whenever they used a chemical weapon, and the the U.S. doesn't do that. Nobody does that." Um, what do you think, Zahir? Do you, do you think that um, uh, behavior change is something that's going to happen with Mr. Assad? What's the what was what would, should be the strategic goal here? I mean, I know it's uh, it's ironic, but I know Assad from the time of um, medical school, and also I met with him after he became a president a couple of times before the crisis. He's a very stubborn uh, person. 
Um, he probably at this point feels invincible because he survived, you know, major crisis. He's winning uh, militarily. Um, but at the same time, he's not compromising, which is predictable based on, you know, his um, prior uh, record. He's not, comprom- he's not coming to ne- Geneva to negotiate with the opposition. The ideal uh, end of this genocide that is happening in Syria, and this is a genocide, half a million people were killed, half of the population are displaced, 60,000 people were tortured to death and burned in crematoriums, and we can go on and on and on. Uh, the, the ideal uh, way to end it is by having Assad regime accepting political transition based on the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2254. That's the base of Geneva negotiation. He has to be forced to accept that. The only party that fo- can force him to accept that is Russia, Putin. Uh, so I think we have to applaud, uh, besides you know, bringing accountability to the perpet- perpetrators of the chemical weapon attacks and making sure that it does not happen again, we want to make sure that the political process is um, also uh, addressed uh, by pressuring Russia and to bring Assad to the table so he can accept political transition. That's the only way that we can end this genocide and stop the bloodshed. Let's not forget that 99% of the people who were killed in Syria were killed by conventional weapons, by missiles, by barrel bombs, um, all kinds of weapons, boring weapons. And not only chemical weapons are killing Syria. Most of people who were killed in Syria is conventional weapons, and we have to stop that also. Um, Joshua Landis, what do you think is going to happen here with Russia? Because it seems like at the United Nations, Russia is resisting everything about this uh, chemical attack and denying, you know, thinking that it's you know not Assad, and we're, they don't want to have investigations that are credible. Uh, they don't seem likely to um, pressure Assad to to leave office anytime soon. But is there some? Something to what Zahir is saying that uh, Russia, if you're going to send a message here, you're sending it to Russia. And, and Russia seems more likely to come back and bomb the U.S. than, than to accept the message. Well, I don't think Russia will bomb the U.S., but um, certainly Russia is not going to um, bring about the downfall of Assad. They have fought with Assad, and Assad has fought for seven years not to leave power. He's not going to leave power anytime soon, and unless the United States wants to uh, destroy his regime and kill him. Um, it's not going to happen, and I don't think that's going to happen. And President Trump has articulated an American position, which he doesn't seem ready to change, which is that the United States needs to get out of Syria. The U.S. has spent about $30 billion on Syria so far, and uh, is spending a lot more in Iraq and Afghanistan and does not want to escalate and take a permanent position in trying to fix Syria. That's the problem, and it's been the problem from the beginning. That's the calculation that Obama made, which is why he didn't destroy the regime. And, of course, at first they tried to build up the opposition to take its place, but the opposition quickly became dominated by extremist factions like Nusra and ISIS, and other Islamist factions that that gained most territory and began to beat back any moderate militias. So the United States abandoned them and, and really threw up its arms. And now the U.S. is backing Kurdish rebels in the north and has set up shop in the north, which gives it leverage but doesn't give it the ability to replace Assad. So even if they were to kill Assad today or push him aside in some way, 
um, they wouldn't have a transition government. And that's the, unless they occupy the country and bring in people like, uh, like Zahir Zahloul, who is speaking today, or other opposition people who they, who they know in the outside. So this is the problem. The United States wants to get out of Syria. It doesn't want to get into Syria. And most American people are exhausted. They feel like the United States has spent trillions of dollars in the Middle East. The more it spends, the more problems it makes, the more people die. And that's, that's been the conundrum, is spending money and uh, using military force has only caused more people to die in places like Iraq, Libya, Yemen, than not spending money. I'm talking with Joshua Landis from the University of Oklahoma. He edits the blog Syria Comment and Dr. Zahir Salul. He's a Chicago-based uh, physician. He is one of the past presidents of the Syrian American Medical Society. He has an editorial in today's Chicago Tribune about uh, Syria normalizing the use of chemical weapons. Well, what do you both think about Russia's threat that, that an attack by the U.S. that um, would have grave repercussions? They, they seem, you know, various Russian officials seem to be uh, floating the idea that there is you know, U.S. troops in the area, that uh, the U.S. and Russia are, have almost uh, gotten into it uh, before. And this is going to be one of those instances where, you know, there are implications for what happens. Does that sound like something that would happen to you, Zahir? Uh, I mean... I'm not an expert on Russia, but I think they're bluffing, and the Russians have been bluffing for some time. You know, uh, they, they're not going to threaten the United States. They know our might. Um, but, you know, going back to what uh, Joshua have mentioned, uh, I, think, um, I think I agree with Joshua that we should have a strategy. I think that's what he's hinting to, that we should have a clear strategy that will end this crisis in Syria, because the crisis is affecting us. Uh, it's not only that we are seeing these videos and uh, pictures of children dying for no clear reason, and then we should maybe cry and, and, and so forth and react, but what's happening in Syria is creating a global refugee crisis. Half, one quarter of the 20 million refugees in the world are from Syria. It destabilized our allies in the region, Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, others. It created a crisis in Europe that led to anti-refugee sentiment, anti-Muslim um, sentiment, and rise of hate groups, and rise of extremist groups in Syria and other places. And as long as this crisis continues in Syria, and as long as Assad is in power, we will continue to face that. And at one point, the administration has to intervene in a way that it will end the crisis. I'm not asking for um, troops here. I'm asking about applying all diplomatic pressures and pressure on the regime so they can accept political settlement that will transition Syria away from this brutal regime that will not allow the refugees to come back, will not allow the rebuilding of Syria, will not allow a civic society rebuilding in Syria, will not allow respect of human rights. So I think uh, that should be the goal of the administration. Uh, you know, it's interesting to think about um, a, a future Syria, but uh, Joshua, you, you you seem to think that Russia's invested so much in Assad that the future Syria is Assad. Uh, certainly for 60% of it. Uh, the United States and the Kurdish uh, troops, the Syrian Democratic Forces that it supports, own about 30% of Syria in the north now. Turkey is taking 
a large swath of Syria, perhaps over 10%, and it seems to have a dominant position in the province of Idlib as well. It's just cleared out Afrin from the Kurds. <clears throat> so Syria is being divided up into different hunks. Russia and Iran are invested very heavily in Assad. The Russian argument for interceding with Syria was an argument very much constructed against what the United States was doing. They said, you know, Putin said, Syria needs a strong man, that America's ideal of bringing democracy to Iraq and Libya and Afghanistan had failed. And it had only, by destroying the states as delicate and as, as, as authoritarian as they were, and as weak as they were, what happened is that you launched these civil wars that created space for extremist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda to expand and multiply both in Iraq and in Syria and Libya and elsewhere. And that he said, you know, Putin's argument was, we don't have a better person than Assad. We're going to support Assad. Many Russians, uh, Chechens and other people are uh, Islamists are going to Syria and training. We don't want them coming home. And we're not going to support this opposition. This is a wrong idea. And this is the clash, in a sense, of two different ideologies. A Russia, which believes the Middle East is not ready for democracy and needs strongmen, and the United States, which believes the, the, the Middle East is ready for democracy and that it can wipe, it can it, it push aside these dictators and get a better democratic alternative. And those two ideas are clashing. Uh, and it's very hard to convince Russia and Putin that strong men are not the answer because he believes he's the answer for Russia. And he's convinced that uh, the democratic answer is the wrong one. Well, Ed, doesn't President uh, Trump seem to think that, uh, you know, we're going to leave this to other guys in Syria now? And, and this, is, this is what he was articulating when he was pulling out. He's not really that gung-ho for, you know, democracy. Um, no, he's yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Go ahead. Zahir, do you want to? Um, yeah, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, he has to stay in Syria because Syria is an important country, not only in the Middle East, but in the world. I mean, uh, one of the um, American scholars in the 50, Philip Hattie, used to say it's a microscopic in its size, cosmic in its influence. And we have seen that in the past seven years. The second thing that we have done before what we did not do in Syria we have done it in Bosnia, we have done it in Kosovo and other places. Milosevic was similar to Assad, and he faced justice one day. And right now, Serbia and Bosnia and other places that were under his rule uh, are democratic places. Um, we cannot keep a war criminal leading Syria. Yes, I agree with Josh that we need to have a strong person, a strong man leading Syria. And we have many of them. I mean, Josh has connection to Syria. I have connection to Syria. Many Syrians I know are successful. Uh, they're in leading um, uh, positions in any place they go. We have successful businessmen throughout the world um, and inside Syria, and they are ready to lead. Um, we cannot just say that there's no one but Assad. We cannot give the Syrian, we should give the Syrian people the chance to choose their own leader away from this brutal regime that proved that it only creates crimes and chaos and extremism in the Middle East. Um, what do you think is going to happen here in uh, the next few moments? If the U.S. takes military action, does it change the equation really uh, in any way? Joshua Landis? 
You know, that's that's the problem. You could take uh, you can deal with the very narrow issue of chemical weapons. That's what Obama chose to do. That's what Trump chose to do in his first strike. You can dissuade. I, I, I think that the U.S. can dissuade Assad from using chemical weapons. But solving the larger problem in Syria of authoritarian government, of bad government, of, of warring factions and different communities that disagree with each other is something that America isn't going to be able to do. And this is it doesn't have the energy. It doesn't have the will. Most Americans voted for Trump because they thought he would get us out of these stupid wars, as he called them. And, you know, this that's the problem. Politically, this is a dead end for the president if he tries to really invest America in solving serious problem. And that's what he's frightened of. And and that's you know, that's the dilemma that faces uh, the United States is what what Dr. Sahlul is saying is, you know, America needs to stand up for democracy in Syria. And unfortunately, it's very doubtful that America is going to take on Syria and try to resolve its problems. And so th- this is likely to be a one off retribution that's going to leave the situation pretty much as it is. And Assad has largely defeated the rebels. So even if he were to be assassinated and his regime were to be very weakened, it probably wouldn't make a big difference in the balance of power today. Joshua Landis is from the University of Oklahoma, their Middle East Studies Center, and uh, he does the blog Syria Comment. And thanks also to Dr. Zaire Solul, the Chicago-based physician. He is the co-founder, co-founder of an NGO called Med Global, and he's also past president of the Syrian American Medical Society. Thanks for joining us and talking about the U.S. and Syria. Well, uh, at the top of the hour, the Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, is going to testify on Capitol Hill today, and WBEZ is going to cover it live starting at 1, and you can listen on 91.5 FM or even watch it live streaming at WBEZ.org. And we're going to take your phone calls about Facebook right after the break, and the number to call is 312-923-9239, and we'll ask what you think Congress should do about Facebook after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. What do you think Congress should do about Facebook? We're going to hear from Mark Zuckerberg at the top of the hour. We thought we would engage some listeners in what should happen about social media in this country. A lot of people were getting little notices from Facebook today telling them that their data had been shared. And um, I I would love to hear from somebody who had had their data shared and got a little message today. I didn't. um, But am I one of the 87 not – of the 87 million who got their data shared. Um, we're going to talk about this now and take phone calls at 312-923-9239. And with me is Pablo Botkowski, and he is a professor of communication studies at Northwestern University, and he is a co-editor of the book Trump and the Media, along with our other guest, Zizi Papakarisi, and she is a professor of political science and communications uh, department chair at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Um, Thank you for having us. 
Uh, Zizi, why don't you go first? Uh, what do you, what kind of regulation do you think should happen? Is is I guess it's uh, what I'm asking people is: Do you think Congress should go ahead and regulate our social media, and how? Uh, you know, I would surprise to see actually um, uh, a succinct regulatory solution to come out. The problem with this particular issue is that. There is no way to fix it completely. The only way to fix the problem completely is by not collecting the data. Um, And that's not going to happen. They are a business. So an optimal solution would be one that combines regulation with educating the public. Ideally, users should be able to opt in and out of what data they share and when, and they should be able to go back on those decisions and revise them. But this requires that they are aware of how the technology works, so that's um, so that way they can make informed decisions, and that is where education comes in. Um, Pablo, what do you think? Uh, should, should Congress weigh in here and start fixing things? I actually, um, I, I think all of Cece's points are excellent. Um, what I would add is that in part the personalization that is available on social media is uh, what drives people's usage. We get a lot more benefit by having uh, social media posts very targeted, very personalized, and that is only possible through the collection uh, of data. So there is a little bit of a quandary there. So in part the collection of those data are what make uh, possible certain benefits. At the same time, it is important that to a certain degree it is regulated. What do you make of what Facebook has done so far? They, they've changed uh, what's going on with, the, with Facebook, and we're seeing a change in what we see on our home pages. Uh, but they're also going with this panel that they're going to put together of uh, academics that are going to study for a year and make recommendations. They're kind of commissioning the, the controversy. Um, is is that a good uh, good way to go? I mean, can they kind of talk their way down from regulation in some way, um, Cece? Um, you know, I think the past few days have been interesting. We've seen some encouraging first steps towards addressing uh, the problem. Uh, you know, the steps also present a way of circumventing regulation. Um, the difficult thing with regulation and Facebook, the Internet as well, is that, you know, these are platforms that are both global and local. So they, you know, do business on a global scale, but also locally. So they have to function in ways that are consistent with the regulatory frameworks of the United States, but also the European Union, uh, countries within Europe. Asia is a completely different story. So that's the reason why the regulatory solution is complex. But the steps that have been taken in the past few days have been positive, have been encouraging. It's good that academics um, are engaged. Uh, uh, Facebook is a massive company. They're actually one of the few companies that have been proactive in hiring social scientists who advise them uh, on these very problems. Uh, So we were getting some signs, finally, that they will do their best to regain the public's trust and fix the problem to the best of their ability. All right. Um, Pablo, what do you think? Yes, I would say that what has happened over the past 48 hours is much, much better than what happened over the past uh, several years. (laughs) Exactly. And that is an encouraging sign. Um, It also talks about the DNA of the company. Perhaps the company, when it comes to these issues, is more reactive than proactive. And that's why it is important that there is some sort of congressional, you know, uh, hearing and uh, more action on that area, because that in part will drive a little bit of... uh, 
Facebook's response. I agree with Zizi that the company has had social scientists in-house for quite some time, and it's very positive that they will open up uh, to other academics. At the same time, the difference between the past few days and the past several years tells us that, uh, you know, external um, eyes looking into them is positive for the general public. Mark Zuckerberg testifies before Congress at the top of the hour. We're carrying it live, and we're talking to listeners before we go there about what they think Congress should do to Facebook and should do about Facebook. The number is 312-923-9239. And Jordan, you're on WBEZ. Hi, Jordan. Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I downloaded uh, my history from Facebook and it's pretty extensive. Everything I've ever looked at, clicked on, they have it. I've read that when this is put together with other information that can be purchased, which means sites you visited, even financial information that's available, you can get a pretty good profile of people. My point is that what can Facebook do now? The cat's out of the bag. The information's been collected. The Russians have it. I believe that they've compromised national security literally, and that they should be shut down. Uh, that's an interesting point. Is I mean, they have certainly compromised a lot of people's security. I mean, if you go around the world and tick things off, uh, the Philippines, uh, the strongman gets supported there. The, in Burma, the genocide got uh, fostered by by Facebook. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about Brexit and Facebook, and that would certainly be a, a big issue for people in Britain. They, he's, he, has, he hasn't testified before their parliamentary committees, and they've asked him three times. Uh, there's, uh, there is a lot to really digest about this, and the, the scandal's almost overwhelming, and Jordan says shut it down. What do you think, ZZ? Uh, well, I think that's, you know, definitely a it's definitely a solution. I'm not sure about, um, and I'm sure that also represents the way that many people feel right about now. Uh, I'm not certain as to the extent to which that is possible. You know, ma uh, Facebook is a massive company, and when we talk about Facebook, we're not just talking about, you know, the platform that we use. We're also talking about a range of other companies that are part uh, of Facebook, that are owned by Facebook. So often um, we've seen users, uh, in particular the, the delete Facebook uh, movement, move from Facebook and to Instagram, uh, to WhatsApp, <laughs> which, you know, coincidentally, both of those are also owned by um, uh, Facebook. So it's, um, it's a large problem. I think uh, it's a, I don't think it's a problem that we're, we're going to be able to, to fix or correct or come up with a solution to within the next couple of days. I think it's something that we're going to have to keep working at. Uh, we've got a, a, a probably one way. Yeah, I, I think it is important to understand that people are on Facebook, are on Instagram, are on Twitter, are on Snapchat, and you name your favorite social media platform because they want to share and they want to learn. So we might be able to, or some might, people might be able to shut down one platform over the other, but they are not going to shut down the desire of people to socialize that way. What we have been seeing are changes in how people relate. And, um, you know, what we need to figure out is what are the best ways of building and regulating and managing platforms so that those desires to share and learn can be fostered without endangering all kinds of things that we hold dear. We're talking about what Congress should do about Facebook, and we're taking a few phone calls at 312-923-9239. And uh, Mr. Zuckerberg testifies live on the radio at the top of the hour. And uh, Ted, you are on WBEZ. 
Hi. Um, there definitely has to be some sort of oversight done with what's going on with Facebook. We've shown, history has shown time and again, that when there's no oversight, that companies left to their own oversight, nothing happens and everything goes off the rails. You can take a look at the bank fiasco with no bank regulation. What happened in 2007, 2008 that sent the world economy into a tailspin and go back a few years before that, you've got like the Enron scandals and all those other business scandals. So it's switched a little bit from our finances and almost crashing the world economy to our personal data where everything about us is now up for sale and Nobody, unless somebody's looking from the outside, nobody from the inside has the, I don't think they necessarily have the motivation and definitely not the financial motivation to put those safeguards in place. Do you have a gut feeling about what you would like to see uh, regulated about Facebook? I mean, would you, would you accept the European Union version of privacy rules? Or um, I'm not sure most people really understand them here in this country, but uh, do you have an idea about what uh, you want? Actually, you bring up a very good point. The European Union and Canada both have uh, significant privacy rules that I think would be a very good starting place to use here in the States. Um, I have read through the Canadian ones, and they've, they've got at least some teeth to them. Um, what, now, Mark Zuckerberg seems to have said that he thinks the European Union standard should kind of be the standard for everyone, and that Facebook is going to uh, voluntarily adhere to that. Is, um, is that what I'm understanding, Zizi? Um, yes, that's correct. I mean, really, it's really no other. There's no other way out. He sort of has to um, adhere to uh, GDPR, as it's called. But um, uh, GDPR is a rather large uh, regulatory framework that includes a number of things that involve how personal data are handled in Europe. So it, it includes things that, like uh, how student uh, grades are accessed to how information about your condo fee associ uh, condo association fees is displayed, to also how your um, uh, data, data are, are uh, stored and are traded and are shared with third parties. So it's a large act. For sure, it presents, uh, you know, uh, a bare minimum uh, for, for data security and data protection. But, uh, uh, you know, our, our data are vulnerable, uh, you know, there will always be loopholes for others to exploit. All right. Um, well, let's take another phone call here on WBEZ. You're uh, on the air, Naomi. Um, hi. I was interested in the earlier comment about the education of users. And one of the things that I believe legislation can accomplish is requiring that end-user license agreements or whatever you have to click when you decide to use an app or sign up for a website should have a format that is in understandable English that makes it clear what you are actually signing up to and what the implications of clicking yes 
or no on various options are. Yeah, yeah you make a good point, Naomi. And I, I was reading a, a recommendation from the New York Times about how to protect ourselves from Facebook, and it was it's one of their writers. And their first item is uh, personalized data collection would only be allowed through opt-in mechanisms that were clear, concise, mm-hmm. and transparent. Um, I think everybody wants that. Pablo? Yes, everybody does want that. The question is whether people will read that, even if it is in plain English and it's very short, because what research shows is that many of those agreements, you know, people don't read them. They just scroll through them very rapidly. So, which is why I think, to take up a point that Zizi previously made, the education component is very important, and it's not just information that is made available uh, to us through the licenses, but also the formal educational institutions, K through 12, through college, and also perhaps, you know, in workplaces, to have workshops, etc., because it's not just Facebook. All of our information is interlinked. And uh, unfortunately, we live in an age in which we can't assume that privacy is something that stays private forever, that we always have to be playing games of catch-up with new technologies. And it's important in the same way that there is continuing education for various professions, that perhaps there is continuing education for us in terms of how we handle and protect ourselves from privacy breaches. I'm talking with Pablo Boczkowski, and he is a professor of communication studies at Northwestern, and he co-edited the new book, Trump and the Media, along with Cece Papacrisi, and she is a professor of political science and communications at the department uh, at the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago. And we are going to be back with more after the break, and about 15 minutes from now, we'll have Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testifying live on Capitol Hill. If you want to get your call in before then 312-923-9239. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We are talking about what Congress should do about Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg about to testify before Congress. And I'm talking with Pablo Boczkowski and Zizi Papacrisi. They are co-editors of the new book, Trump and the Media. They're having a book signing event not too long from now. You're uh, doing this on the on the 21st on at the Northwestern? 21st at Northwestern University at 11 a.m. between 11 and 12.30. We'll have four of our authors uh, give talks, and there will be a Q&A with the audience. All right. Trump and the Media, the new book by Pablo Boczkowski and Cece Papacrisi. Um, now, I wanted to ask a question here really quick about how long and how effectively Facebook has dragged its feet over its information-sharing, uh, you know, scandals. Uh, they would never have said anything, it seems like, about the Cambridge Analytica or just anything. They're, they've got to be is absolutely pushed out there um, before they react. Pablo? So far, based on the information available, they have dragged their feet for quite some time. We don't know how long that for, but for years, they have known about this for, you know, longer than a couple of days. And they have uh, effectively stalled uh, the evolution of the process for quite some time, which is why it is very important what has happened over the past 48 hours. And it's very important that there is more, you know, oversight and there is more, um, you know, activism around the issue. Um, let's go to a caller. Paul, you're on WBEZ and the number 312-923-9239. Thanks, Paul, for calling. 
Yes, good afternoon. Um, the only way that I believe Facebook will change is by users to stop using it because Facebook, like every other corporation in America, is about money, and money is the lifeblood of the corporation. Uh, until we get term limits, Congress will never do anything. There's too much money going into Congress. People that use Facebook can just use other media. They can go to their local cafe and actually talk to people, which is really socialization as opposed to computer socialization. Um, there's no other way to stop Facebook. It's too big. There's too much money involved. But Mark Zuckerberg, despite his lofty ambitions, he understands money because he heads the corporation. Every corporate head, head understands share price. If people walk away, Facebook will change. That's, In my opinion, that's the only way. All right. Uh, Zizi Papakrisi, uh, what do you think about this? There was a movement on Facebook to to basically walk away, and I, I, it seemed to have petered out. Um. Yeah, Pablo made an excellent point later on about how this is a golden opportunity to not so much uh, abandon Facebook and uh, carry on your social conversations elsewhere, but rather to grasp this opportunity and to use it as a way to um, leverage and affect positive change in terms of how all of these platforms use our data. Because uh, you do realize, of course, that you know Facebook has become the center of attention now, and but Facebook is not the only platform uh, that makes use of our data. Uh, there's Twitter. There's also a number of online retailers that um, that gather, that store, that trade our information. So those are all situations uh, that need to be looked at and uh, need to be considered more carefully. And it's amazing how many people there are using Facebook across the whole planet. If everybody in the United States quit Facebook, they would lose 11% of their business. That's uh, pretty scary. <laughs> That's pretty wild. <laughs> it is wild for the shareholders. Oh, sorry. No, please, Pablo, go ahead. No, no, please, Cici, go ahead. Oh, I was only going to ask that, uh, add that, you know, when we talk about regulatory solutions, you know, this whole idea of opt-in and out of sharing your data, that involves or rather requires a redesign of the platform. And any redesign of the platform means that Facebook needs to reconsider its business plan. So that, yes, would involve a substantial loss of that business or a reconsideration of how the platform generates, the platform generates revenue. Yes, and in addition to that, CC, I agree 100% with what you said. There is also the issue that what the research shows is that you know, socializing through social media is not worse than socializing face-to-face. -face. There are different and complementary ways of socializing, which is why if it's not through Facebook, it will be through other platforms because people do want to socialize that way and derive tremendous benefits from doing so. Let's go to another call. Uh, we're going to go to Mark Zuckerberg testifying before Congress in about eight minutes. But first, we're going to hear from Robert. You're on WBEZ. Thank you for having me. I wanted to uh, let everyone know that, um, it, you know, trying to demonize uh, Facebook and uh, scapegoating Facebook is uh, obnoxious. <laughs> and the reason for that is people in IT usually work because they like what they do and they like solving problems. Um, it is quite unfortunate that Facebook uh, has been used in such a bad way, but so has um, been distorted with Atom. I mean, we can make nice nuclear power from it, 
also we can, you know, kill people with it. So Facebook is in the same predicament, <clears throat> meaning that they created something that's really big. <clears throat> they have not really thought through when it comes to the implications for people that um, have lots of brains and going to use those brains for, you know, uh, big players like in this case, in this case, uh, uh, Russia or some other nation states, to say the least. So for me, uh, goes you know, it goes back to my um, uh, initial comment. It's not about trying to find a uh, who is at fault. It is more a question of, okay, how do we bring everyone on board with the complexity of today's world um, and the understanding? So when people sign up for a service, they don't have to read the legalese. They don't have to understand every nuance, every possibility, because quite frankly, you cannot leg- legalize, or excuse me, legislate uh, the, pos- the, the bad misuses that will come. You never know how it's all going to turn out. So there is no uh, law in, the, in this world, you know, um, uh, EU uh, or in the States or in Canada, uh, that's going to basically protect people. People want to have a nice, quick, right. um, uh, easy solution. Well, it ain't going to happen because we've got brains. Uh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> okay. okay. We- I want to ask a quick question here. The, I think it's um, interesting that so many people, um, I mean, the opt-in and out thing, If we're uh, do, even if it's legal and clear, do we really have any choice? I mean, if we want to share our pictures with our neighbors and our friends in San Francisco, we've got to we've got to click yes. We don't uh, have really any choice if this platform is so ubiquitous. Uh, people are going to want to click it all the time. You're never going to be able to get people to not click it, and uh, I, I don't and I don't think it really matters what the what the verbiage is. Does uh, Pablo? There is always a choice. Right. Uh, I mean, the majority of the population on the planet uh, is not using Facebook. There are other social media platforms and there are people who do not want for privacy reasons, for technology access reasons, etc., who do not want to use social media. What is true is that there are so many people spending so much time and sharing so much information on social media that uh, it becomes very tempting to do so. And because of that, it is important to uh, you know, preserve the good and also enact certain uh, regulations and certain legislation and technological solutions that can minimize the potential negative effects. Um, ZC, do you want to say something about that? Um, sure. Yeah. Briefly, I would just say I, I agree with Pablo. Of course, there's a. It's a, it's funny how accustomed we've become to this sort of paradigm for friendship and um, sharing information that Facebook has introduced. Uh, and there's a number of different ways of doing this online that other countries have adopted. Uh, and I want to emphasize that it's not too late. It's still early. We have to. We still have to change. There's ways to redesign the platform to make it more user friendly. And one last thing, we see more and more that people are drawn to platforms that offer ephemeral access to data. That's one of the appeals of Snap or Snapchat. Instagram also has similar uh, features. So that, again, indicates how favorable people are to the option of opting in, of having a say in how long that photo that they post will be available for, will be visible. Yeah, that would be a good one. 
Um, is there something, Pablo, that you're anxious to hear Mark Zuckerberg asked? Is there a question that you are dying to hear a Congress to come out of a congressman's mouth t- this afternoon? <laughs> why so long before they took action? I think that's the question. You know, why, why, why waiting so much? We, we perhaps know the answer, but it's important that, that he be asked a question that he answers. And, and you know, what's next? Um, Cece, do you, you have some thoughts on that? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, there's a curious, um, there's a complex game of politics being played globally, but I think also locally in Silicon Valley, I think it's curious that we've sort of focused on uh, Facebook and left Twitter out of the greater picture. So I'd like to see somehow that come up in the conversation that um, uh, occurs in the next few days. I'd, I for sure would like to hear more about uh, all the fake accounts and the bots and the propagated content uh, uh, that became more visible and amplified through Twitter. C.C. Papakrisi is a professor of political science and chair of the communications department at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She is editor of the journal Social Media and Society. She's co-editor of the book Trump and the Media, along with Pablo Borchakowski. Uh, and he is a professor of communication studies at Northwestern University, co-director of the Center for Media and Society in Argentina. And he's co-editor of the book Trump and the Media. Great to see you again, meet you guys and uh, talk with you. And your event is on the 21st at Northwestern University, your uh, book opening for Trump and the Media, Pablo? Here in Chicago. We have one in New York and one in London as well, my friend. Ah, very good. You're going international. <laughs> and, uh, well, I'll, I've got a, you gave me a copy of Trump and the Media, and I look forward to dipping my nose into it. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.